Well, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13 this morning. John chapter 13. Going in a little different order this morning since we have communion at the end. So we're jumping into the text already this morning. Really looking forward to what God has for us in this chapter. Well, while you turn, I want to share with you a brief update as we head into the summer. Many of you got to experience that in Sunday class this morning as we split up as a pastoral search committee and visited uh, the classes. Hopefully that was enjoyable. I know we really value your feedback. I got great feedback from the classes I was with, and it's so very exciting to be able to interact with you all. Of course, any of us are available for feedback. doesn't have to be the person that visited your class, but we hope splitting up like that maybe just give you one person to pray for on the committee and also one person that if you have any comments or questions, you can certainly go to that person. Please do keep us in prayer. Those bookmarks uh, are for you to pray for us, so please do so, and always appreciate hearing from many of you that you do. Uh, A quick update for those unable to be in Sunday class this morning. We're making great progress as the committee. Uh, We've worked through some of those initial stages of the search, a lot of preliminary work that goes into that process to make it go smoother and, Lord willing, faster down the line. And now we're actively evaluating the dozens of candidates that have come in. Many of you submitted some. Really appreciate that. Be glad to receive even more candidates if if you've been thinking about somebody to submit that is still open. Uh, But we are currently evaluating uh, those folks. Also wanted to update you on the preaching schedule as we head into the summer. This is, of course, all tentative and Lord willing, but here's our plan. We plan to finish John at the end of July. So this series we've been in, Come and See, Doing Life with Jesus, hope to finish that at the end of July and then evaluate and discuss moving forward uh, as we head into the fall beyond that. In June, we plan to cover John 14 to 19. This is Jesus' last conversation with his disciples and then his crucifixion, arrest and crucifixion. Jeremy Ray and Pastor Chase will be preaching uh, those passages for us. And then in July, we'll be covering John 20 and 21. These are the resurrection appearances of Christ, which will be an exciting conclusion to our study. Myself and Robert Horn will be preaching um, those chapters. Uh, This is also exciting to hear Robert Horn because, Lord willing, we're planning to ordain him this fall. So it's an exciting stage for our church and give you a chance, another chance to evaluate him and his preaching uh, before the fall comes. And then also one week we'll be having Pastor Dean Taylor in, our former lead pastor. He'll be visiting us. Uh, He'll be preaching for us. I know many of you appreciated his ministry and will enjoy hearing him during the summer as well. Now, I know it's sometimes difficult to hear a different speaker every single week, um, and and that can be a difficult thing to come, but um, there is ultimate consistency because we know the Spirit of God works through the Word of God to speak to the people of God, right? So... Every week he might speak through different personalities, although we will be trying to give multiple weeks for each speaker to help with that. And there's diverse personalities here on our pastoral team uh, that I know I love and appreciate. But no matter who's speaking, the Spirit is working, uh, and he can change us through the Word, and so therefore there's always something to learn. So I hope you come every week excited uh, to hear from God and to hear what his Word has to say about our lives. Well, let's pray as we get started, and then we'll jump in to John chapter 13. Oh, Lord, we come to you as sinful people. We confess to you the amazing amount of ways that we have failed you this week. We have been very selfish. We have been consumed with our own priorities, our own schedule. Perhaps we've been grumpy or irritable when that's been interrupted with our spouse, with our kids, with our coworkers, with our roommates, with whoever we interact with. Lord, forgive us. We come before you. Uh, dirty and 
defiled by sin, by a week of sin, and we come to you for cleansing. Uh, We know you can wash us thoroughly from our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin by the blood of your Son. And so we ask this morning that you would do that work for us. We know you have. You've forgiven us completely, utterly, in the cross where your Son paid for our sin. And so, Lord, we ask for this morning uh, that to be confirmed to our heart, encouraging our hearts with that truth, and reminding us um, that you can wash away any stain, any sin, and you love us. Uh, You want us to have a deeper relationship with you. You want to draw us, as the song said, deeper still into your love. And I pray that we would do that this morning so that we would rest beneath your smile, knowing that you're pleased. We're never alone. That you put your favor upon us through the blood of your son and that we are accepted. You are our father. We are your children. And help us to rest in that. And then, Lord, inspire us by these truths to go forth and to serve all we encounter. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many of you this morning like plot twists? You like plot twists when a book, a movie, a TV show you're watching, all of a sudden something happens that you didn't expect, and whoa, the surprise, the shock, it's incredible, it's awesome. I totally did not expect that to happen. That's why we care so much when people tell us spoilers for a movie or something we have not seen before. I mean, that's probably one of the worst things you could do to me. I've got a lot of fandoms, I'll tell you. And so please, never tell me spoilers for anything. Uh, I will be very upset. Uh, We like to be surprised. We like the plot twists. And perhaps one of the greatest plot twists in cinematic history is in The Empire Strikes Back, when Darth Vader says, No, I am your father. Now, that movie, friends, came out in 1980. I was not born yet at that point, so I did not see that movie at that point. And so by the time uh, poor little Matt came around to his love of Star Wars, that line had been out for years. I mean, it's one of the more famous lines in movie history. The spoiler of that moment was spoiled. Everybody already knew it. It was commonplace. Everybody knew that Darth Vader was Luke's father. It doesn't shock us anymore. Even if you don't know Star Wars, you probably know that line. Well, what we find in this chapter in John 13 is a plot twist that tops all plot twists. It is an incredible turn that we see here in the Gospel of John. But like this one, it's one we're, many of us, very familiar with. So it's lost its appeal. It's lost its excitement. We've heard it many times over the course of our lives. Perhaps we've read it many times. Now, maybe for some of you, it will be brand new, and that's awesome, and you'll be able to really see it with fresh eyes. But I really want all of us to approach this text with fresh eyes. Because this is a crazy turn of events that we're going to read about in John chapter 13. Let me just set the stage of where we've been in John so far. We saw in chapter 1 that the God who made everything we can see took on flesh, became a human, entered into our world. Jesus Christ, the God-man. And then we saw through the course of his ministry all these signs and miracles he did. He could manipulate the elements. He could turn water into wine in chapter 2. He could take bread and fish and multiply them into more and feed thousands in chapter 6. He could heal anyone. He healed a lame man in chapter 5. He healed a blind man we talked about last week in chapter 9. He could even raise the dead. His friend Lazarus, chapter 11. We talked about that at Easter. And so he enters into Jerusalem in chapter 12. We talked about that one on Palm Sunday. He's being hailed as this king. And now we come to this moment where this incredible God-man who can do anything, he can heal any disease, any blindness, lameness, he can multiply food, he can raise the dead. And now we come to this climactic moment where he says, my hour has now come. 
It's been building up to this moment. He's used that language, my hour, my hour. And now finally, his hour has come. In chapter 13 and verse 1. So let's read this together. Read with fresh eyes. uh, And let's see what God has for us this morning. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Did you catch the plot twist there? Did you catch the amazing turn of events? Jesus This God-man who has all this power to work all these miracles, and he knew his power, he knew his status, he knew what was to come, and he rises from supper to go low and serve his disciples. He rises not to make a speech about his greatness, but to stoop down and dress like a slave and wash his disciples' dirty feet. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of somebody taking off their shoes and socks at the end of a long day, but probably not very pleasant thoughts. But if we have this idea of stinky feet, it's nothing compared to what this culture in this time period would have thought of feet. They would have all probably worn open-toed shoes that would have gotten very, very dirty on their dusty roads. Uh, And even the whole concept of the foot was even a shameful idea. Even still today in some Eastern cultures, showing the bottom of your foot to someone can be an act of shame. And yet Jesus, in spite of all that, goes low and washes their feet. We talk about how a shepherd should smell like his sheep. Well, this is the extreme version of that, where Jesus takes those stinky feet, takes a stench on himself to wash it all away and to stoop as low as somebody could possibly go in this culture. What is the point 
of this amazing story. Well, in spite of the stench, in spite of the stress, Jesus still served. In spite of the ugliness, Jesus still loved. In spite of the unworthiness of the recipient, Jesus still gave his service. In spite of all the dirtiness, Jesus still washed his disciples' feet. And he said in verse 15 that he did this as an example to them of how they too were to love and serve one another. So we should ask ourselves, are we following his example? Are we following his example? Because Jesus has loved and served us, we should love and serve one another. Or we could put it like this. Loved, we love. This is the pattern of the Christian life. Those of you who have been in my class or other contexts know this is one of my favorite quotes. I don't even remember who said it. My friend just kind of posted this quote from some commentator or something. But I think it just really encapsulates this passage and really the thrust of the New Testament for us. Loved, being loved by God, we love one another. This is the pattern of the Christian life. Jesus served. He went low in spite of every excuse available to him. So will you, are you serving like this? And if not, why not? Why do we not serve? Well, I think often we can come up with all sorts of excuses for why we might not serve as we should. And I came up with a few to put up here for us. Perhaps right now it's the fact that we're waiting on a lead pastor. Why should I get involved? Why don't I just pull kind of back and see what happens? Or just the fact that it's summertime, it's kind of this time to pull back and rest. Or maybe just, hey, somebody else is going to take care of that. I don't need to do it. I'm sure somebody will care for that person that's needy. Or I don't want to intrude into somebody's life. I don't want to push myself on them. It's none of my business. Or I'm just not very good at it. It's not my calling. It's not my spiritual gift. Or I don't like how it's done. I don't like how they do it that way, and so I'm not going to serve. Or maybe the most common one, I am just too busy. There's just too much going on. I don't have enough time. Or perhaps the real motive that we would never say out loud behind all these excuses is this one. I just don't like people. Does anyone ever feel that? You're all too ashamed to even laugh. Uh, I just don't like people. I'm just kind of sick of people. I think we all get to that stage. I know in my own heart, we get, I've gotten to that point where it's like, man, Can't people just not people? Can't they just, you know, do what I want them to do? We just get sick of people, and we just want to pull back and not serve and not go low. Now, are any of these excuses valid? Well, let's consider Jesus. Let's consider Jesus's potential excuses that he could have given for why he should not have washed his disciples' feet in that moment. And John really kind of lays these out for us in the first uh, three verses, kind of building up to this point. John says that Jesus knew his hour had come. He knew he was about to die. So his time was short. Why should he do this? He had already loved them all throughout. He had already done so much for these guys. He had already proven that he loved them. Besides that, one of them would betray him. And John says Jesus knew that from the get-go. One of them would betray him. And one of them would deny him three times. In fact, another passage tells us that all of them would abandon him. Why should he serve these guys? He already had all things. He already knew his status before the Father. And generally, he was deeply troubled. Can you imagine Jesus? Jesus was deeply troubled. He experienced an emotional turmoil in this moment. Look at verse 21. After saying these things, we just read the first 20 verses, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. 
Now flip back, if you will, to chapter 12 and verse 27. We'll see that same word used again. Now is my soul troubled. 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Wow, what an attitude Christ had. He experienced the deep trouble, the deep anguish that he was facing this cross and all that it would mean. And yet he said, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. This is my purpose. This is what I have been brought to do. And so, Father, glorify your name. Could we follow that example of Christ? When we're deeply troubled, and no doubt all of us are in different ways, instead of saying, I'm deeply troubled and so I won't do the next thing I should do, I won't pursue people, instead of giving those excuses, we instead see those excuses as opportunity. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. Jesus knew his purpose. He knew who he was. And so he had confidence to go forth and serve his disciples. And that's the same confidence we need and we can have because we too can be certain about who we are as we enter this summer. And that's what I want to give us this morning to help fight these excuses, to help fight the the deep trouble that we feel in our souls and, and that's causing us to pull back. I want to give us two certainties for this summer that help us turn excuses into opportunities. Some things, my friends, are not up for discussion. Some things are not up for debate. Some things will not change in a changing life. Some things are never in transition, even as we face a season of transition. Some things are certain, and we can go to the bank with them. Some things we can build our lives upon. So two things this morning for us that we see in this text. First off, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me in spite of my sin. Now, Matt, that is very, very simple for us this morning. Perhaps we could all sing a song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Won't make you sing this morning, but uh, we know the song. We probably grew up singing that as one of the earliest songs. I'm singing it to my own daughter now, and I'm realizing, hmm, that is a simple song. But man, if we can get a hold of that, that's half the battle right there. That simple truth, that Jesus loves me in spite of my sin. And we see Jesus demonstrate his love in this chapter through two particular examples. The first one, the first proof of his love, is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, the one who shortly would betray Jesus with a kiss in the garden. Think of all the ways that Jesus showed love to Judas in this passage. First of all, he washed Judas's feet John makes that very, very clear in verse 2 and then later in verses 10 and 11 that Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him and he still washed his feet. Jesus even knew the prophecy of David in Psalm 41, 9 that the one who ate bread with him would lift up his heel against him as if to kick him. He lifted up his heel as if to stomp on him. The one who was his friend who ate with him would strike out at him. Yet Jesus took that heel with all the dirt and grime upon it, and he washed it gently. He washed Judas's feet. That is an incredible truth to think about. Not only that, but Jesus gave Judas a special portion. We don't have time to read it, but in 21 through 30, uh, Jesus will go on to tell the disciples that one of them is going to betray him. And in fact, the disciples start this whole discussion, who is it going to be? And and Simon Peter's trying to play charades with John across the way to signal to him to ask Jesus, hey, who is this going to be? And, And John 
he's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. We'll see that come up again. He's leaning back on Jesus and asking him. And Jesus says, hey, it's the one I'm going to hand this morsel to after I have dipped it. And he hands it to Judas Iscariot. And he tells him, hey, what you're going to do, do quickly. And then Judas slips out and leaves. We don't know exactly what this special portion was, but likely it was some uh, thing of honor, like a piece of bread given to Judas as like the guest of honor. And it meant that Judas was probably sitting very close to Jesus. We know John was sitting close to Jesus, but Judas maybe was on the other side for Jesus to be able to hand this special morsel to. And they were sitting at a very low table. This gives you a picture of what it would look like. That's why they were reclining at the table and not just sitting. And so Jesus hands this to Judas, and and Judas leaves. And and Jesus is even kind in how he discreetly dismisses Judas. He doesn't make a big show of it. He doesn't call him out. He doesn't shame him. In fact, most of the disciples don't even know who it is that's going to betray Jesus. They think Judas is going off to buy something for the poor or something like that. So Jesus loves Judas. He loves the one who's about to betray him. That's incredible. He's very kind and gracious to him in the last act of love, handing him this portion. But it's not just Judas. Jesus is also showing his love to Simon Peter. Simon Peter. Did you see in verses 6 through 10 how many times Peter interrupted? Maybe some of you teachers can identify with Jesus. You just have a student who likes to interrupt and likes to change their mind and go from one extreme to the other. Maybe you can identify with Jesus in this passage. Peter's like, hey, don't wash my feet. And then Jesus is like, well, I need to wash your feet. And then he's like, oh, great. Just wash, wash my head, wash my hands. Pour the bucket over me, Peter says. He goes from one extreme to another. But throughout that, Jesus is kind. He is tender. He, he deals with the interruptions. And he's gracious towards Peter. But then at the very end of this chapter, in verse 36, I want to draw your attention to another interruption of Peter. He pipes up again, and Jesus has some words to say to him. Look at verse 36 of John 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Three times. Now, this is where a chapter break is not very helpful, and they were added later. So I want you to turn the page or swipe in the Bible app, and I want you to go to chapter 14 and verse 1. Look at what immediately happens after uh, Peter's denial has been predicted. Jesus says to Peter and the rest of the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, that's quite a turn. That's quite an amazing turn. Peter, you're going to deny me, but don't let your hearts be troubled. In fact, all of you are going to deny me and abandon me, but don't let your hearts be troubled. This is the same word that Jesus used to describe his own emotional state earlier in those verses we read. He was troubled, thinking about the cross. We know he would sweat drops of blood in the garden over the anguish of having to face the wrath of God for all humanity. And yet, he says, I am troubled, but you don't let your hearts be troubled. If that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what will. In spite of Peter's predictive a prediction of that he's going to deny Jesus... Jesus still says, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust me. I've got this. Don't be discouraged. 
In fact, in Luke 22, Jesus says to Peter that he prayed for him and that when he turns back, he is to encourage his brother. So Jesus even predicts Peter is going to turn back. That's encouraging. That's amazing. And we're going to see that in John chapter 21 at the very end of our study together. I'm really looking forward to going there because Peter is just one of those characters that's always been encouraging to me. You know, sometimes you're reading the Bible and you're like, man, some of these people are just a little too good. You know, they're just a little too good. Even though if you really look into it, almost every single Bible character is really a lot worse than you think they are. Uh, And they're all sinners, of course. But sometimes you just feel, man, the Apostle Paul, he was just so faithful. And in those moments when I'm looking at my life and I'm like, man, I am a big sinner here, which I should think of way more often than I do. But man, I'm just just a failure. I like to look at Peter. Because here's this disciple of Jesus, one of his chosen three, the one he said, upon this rock I will build my church, and yet Peter denies Jesus three times. And he messes up, and he interrupts, and he gets it wrong again and again and again. And yet Jesus pursues him, restores him, and tells him, let not your hearts be troubled. But I want you to think of a third person here, not just Judas, not just Peter. I want you to think of you, because Jesus loves you as well. Think about the love that Jesus has shown to you in your life. Believers, think about how many times, in spite of being washed and forgiven and cleansed, you go back into the world and your feet get all dirty and disgusting from the sins that you commit week after week after week. And yet Jesus stands there ready to cleanse you again, ready to wash off whatever filth you have gotten yourself into. C.S. Lewis describes God like this mom who's waiting for her kids to come home. After playing in the mud all day, the mom's got towels ready, the bath is ready, everything's ready to wash these kids up. That's us in the Christian life. We mess up, we fall, we are stained by the sins of life, and yet God is ready to take us back, to love us, to clean us back up. There is no sin, there is no stain beyond his cleansing power. Hebrews 10, tells us that Jesus' blood can cleanse us, can wash us. And it's not just believers, it's for you, perhaps, who don't yet believe or have questions. Jesus' blood can wash away your sin as well. Jesus can wash away any sin. No dirt is beyond his washing. No sin is beyond his ability to forgive and to restore and to bring you back to himself. But it doesn't end here. Very nice. We've been loved by God. No, this love changes our lives. This love changes the way we live. And that brings us to our second certain thing. And that's this. Jesus loves us in spite of our sin. Love one another. Very simple. Very straightforward this morning. Love one another. That's something that's certain for us this summer. This command this calling to love. Look at verse 33 of John chapter 13. Jesus says to his disciples, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here we see the truth that because Jesus loves us, 
we can love one another. Loved we love. This is a pattern of the Christian life. And this love leads to practical service. Just like Jesus, his love for his disciples led him to stoop down and to wash his disciples' feet. So for us, this call to love, Christ's love for us, leads us to serve. This means that if Jesus stooped down to wash his disciples' feet, there is no task that is below you. There is no task that you can't do. There is nothing that you are too good for, to do in the church, in the Christian life. Like Jesus, your motto should be here to serve. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. What's your attitude when you go into a place? Are you looking to be served, or are you like, hey, I'm here to serve? I'm here to serve. Every place you enter, your question is, hey, I'm here to serve. What can I do today? How can I help you today? How can I be a blessing to you today? How can I serve? How can I go low? Now, what does Jesus say, looking back at verse 35, that people will know that they are disciples? Look at it again. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you look just right. If you, you know, look weird enough from the world, then people will know, oh, they're weird, so they must be Christians, right? Or, or if you look cool enough. Man, if you really are cool and awesome and hip, then people will know. Or if you just have the exact right preferences or traditions outside of Scripture, then people will know. Or if you just really serve the world and are always caring for the poor, then people will know that you are my disciples. No, that's not what Jesus says. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's talking about within the body of Christ. If you have love for one another. If you have love for the church. But how are Christians known today? How is the church known today? If we were to go out on the street and take a little poll, what would people say about the church? Hello, sir, what would you say about Christianity and the church? Well, I do not think many people would say, well, man, they just love each other within that church. Now, hopefully, in some cases, they would say that. But I think by and large, what they'd say is, yeah, they, they kind of are constantly bickering and, and fighting and just generally being grumpy about their lives and constantly being cantankerous and, and dividing over all sorts of different things. And, and yeah, I think that's what we're known as. Not by love for one another. And I don't know about you, but I've sensed in recent months my own selfishness my own sense of grumpiness and entitlement has just flared up in this season of transition. I think that's happening for all of us. I just got this sense that we're all being tempted and drawn by our selfish agendas and preferences. And why is that? I think it's because the evil one is at work. Now, we see the evil one at work in this chapter in the life of Judas, causing him to betray Jesus. And of course, Satan is at work in those big ways, causing major sins. But sometimes we're blind through the small ways the evil one is tempting us. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are pulling at us. The very small little actions like making a little snide comment to a friend at church about something you don't like. Or, or gossiping about a fellow church member that you don't agree with. Or just complaining about this, that, or the other that goes on. Friends, we cannot let Satan into our church in this season. We must be known for our love for one another. 
we must not let him get a foothold of disunity or, or, or of unkindness, of division, of anger. We must not let him get even one foothold into our church. So how do we do it? How can we pull off such an attitude of service? Maybe you really want to, but man, it's just so easy to do your own thing and, and to, to constantly complain or, or just see the negative. How do we find motivation to do this? Well, this summer, I want to challenge you to be steadfast. If I could give you one word for this summer, and that it's this. Be steadfast. Be sure, be certain, be confident. How? Why? How can we generate that? Well, we get a verse that we've been studying in community groups that's been on my heart and mind and ties in well with this passage. Paul, after laying out the gospel and the death and the resurrection of Christ, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's what we need to rest on. That's how we can be steadfast in loving one another. We can really, in this season of our church, abound. We can move forward. That's our heart. That's our passion. We don't want to just sit on our hands and wait around. We want to be steadfast. We want to be moving forward. We want to be abounding in the work of the Lord. That's my challenge for you, and I hope you'll take it to heart. Maybe even memorize this verse. Make it the background of your phone. This is what we want to be because of the love of Christ we can be steadfast. We can abound. But how specifically can we do that this summer? Well, here's just a bunch of opportunities for you. I'm just laying it out there of ways we're moving forward and needs that we have here at this church. We talked about the men's ministry. You'll get to hear a lot more about that from Paul in weeks to come. We're, we're revamping that and, and planning some activities. And men, plug in. Get involved. Community outreach. We got VBS. What a great opportunity. Still need more workers there. We have our net teams going out in the afternoons. We have constant opportunities that pop up for us to serve our community. And we just don't have the bandwidth to be able to do it. We need people to be passionate about reaching the community. Maybe an idea will come across your mind of something you can do. We need to be reaching out. And then prayer times. You're like, Matt, prayer is not really, you know, service. You don't really think of it as a service. Well, prayer is one of the greatest ways to serve the body of believers. And we're planning, very specifically, on Sunday night, since we don't have Sunday night activities this summer, we're planning three opportunities, you can see the dates up there, in the evening to gather in this auditorium, all ages, just to pray. And that's what we need in this season. We need to be unified. We need to gather together to pray for our church, to pray for our needs. And I invite you all to plug in, come to those, and even do it outside. Gather a group together to pray. And then there's all sorts of opportunities for Bible studies. We put it out there again this year like we did last year. If you have a heart for something, you want to be involved in a ladies' study or a men's study, man, let us know. Let's see if we can coordinate a group of people to get together. Just because community groups or Sunday nights are on break doesn't mean we don't have to still gather. There are plenty of opportunities where organically we can gather together. There's plenty of other needs we have. There's multiple classes that need care group leaders, somebody to step up and take a smaller group and reach out to people. We have a need for multi-generational mentoring. We need the older generation to pour into the younger generation and build those relationships. We have opportunities in the women's ministry. In fact, they'll be sending out a survey for ways you can get involved and give feedback for the future there. We have needs in the nursery to the children's ministry, constantly need after need after need cropping up there. 
Friends, there's no lack of opportunities in our church. Plug in, take a step, be steadfast, go low this summer. But I also don't want to just give you all the negatives and all the things we need, although I hope to challenge you. I also want to tell you about the positive things because we are serving church. And I am encouraged constantly, week after week, to hear ways you all are serving one another. To see groups of people getting together organically, different generations and meeting together. To see a group of ladies coordinate more times for fellowship all on their own, just to hang out together, encourage one another. To see different service projects and people giving encouraging notes or, or meeting a need at a widow's house. All sorts of ways that our church is involved. In fact, we ran the numbers again, and it's still about the same as it was a few years ago. We still have about 60% of our church body who actively serve. And that's a great number, higher than average. But there's always room to grow. And so my challenge for you is to make this a steadfast summer and to think and pray about what God would have you do to take one step forward in service and in loving one another. Perhaps better said, one step down. Because we need to go low. We need to humble ourselves to serve. So in spite of Judas's betrayal, in spite of Peter's three denials, in spite of his upcoming arrest, his torture, his false accusations, his death on the cross, Jesus still went low. And he served his disciples. So what is your excuse? Why can't you serve in children's ministry or call up that lonely person or plug into that Bible study. Loved we love. This is the Christian life. Jesus gave us this example so that we would find motivation and energy to love one another. Whatever that looks like for you in your season of life, whatever you can do, take a step down to serve this body. And if you don't feel like loving people, maybe spend a little bit more time on that loved part. Maybe you need to bask in the love that the Father and Jesus have for you. Maybe you need to dwell and meditate on his love to find the motivation to love others. And that's an important point that I really want to leave you with this morning because I don't want to leave you being motivated by guilt or by people-pleasing. Oh, man, we got to serve. There's so many needs. Well, I guess I'll just do it, and everybody will think I'm a pretty awesome Christian if I just serve. No, that's a terrible motivation. And really, that'll leave us all burned out, won't it? If we're just serving for that reason. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you are serving, as so many of you do, and you're just feeling weary or burned out. So I want to end with another passage that ties in so clearly with this one. It's another dinner. It's another instance of somebody washing someone else's feet. And it happened a chapter before, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Here we see a woman named Mary, sister of Martha, sister of Lazarus, the one who was raised from the dead, she goes low. She washes the feet of Jesus. She takes this expensive ointment and she pours it out and washes Jesus' feet. She had every excuse not to do this. There was a social awkwardness of her being a woman doing this. There was the expensive ointment. This was likely her future uh, that she was giving up to pour out on somebody who was about to die. But she still did it. In spite of her sister Martha serving, we know Martha was serving, and we know in another passage that Martha liked to serve and, and probably wanted Mary to be helping her. In spite of that, in spite of Judas, we see him in this passage. He complains that she wasted this money. It could have been sold and given to the poor, this ointment. 
Sounds a little bit like some of our criticism sometimes. But in spite of all of that, she still went low. She stooped and went low and worshipped her Savior. And that's what I want to leave you with. Above all our service, one thing, friends, is needful. To sit at Jesus' feet and to worship him. What a tragedy it would be this morning if we got more volunteers but not more worshipers. If everything is done out of serving man to look good, but not to serve Christ. When it comes to service, when it comes to love for Christ, worshiping Christ always must come first. So how do we avoid wearing out in this season of service? How do we keep being steadfast, immovable, abounding? We have to start here. We have to worship. We have to keep Christ at the center We have to commune with him. What does that look like? Well, it's very simple things. It's praying and studying the word. Having a relationship with him beyond just Sunday. Communing with him. Having a deep level relationship with this Savior who loved you. And that's why we're going to do in a few moments a simple action called 